justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. This episode of Asymmetrical Haircuts is supported by JusticeInfo.net. Hi, welcome everybody. I'm Janet Anderson and today I'm without my colleague Stephanie van den Berg because, unsurprisingly, she's caught up with Ukraine. As we're recording, she's at the International Court of Justice uh, reporting on the provisional measures that they have come up with. And I've just heard that the court says that Russia must suspend, quote unquote, its use of military force in Ukraine, which came as a bit of a shock to some observers, definitely ups the stakes and puts some more pressure on Russia. I feel it's up to me to try and turn your gaze away from the horrors that we're seeing in Ukraine every day now in March 2022 and uh, ask you to discuss, well, to listen to our discussion about a war, a civil war that ended in 1996 and had been going on for more than 30 years. Today we're talking about Guatemala about the search for truth there, justice, how sexual violence was covered up, how deep-seated racism in Guatemalan society prevented women from being able to get justice, and how societies were torn apart by the conflict and how they can start to heal. Now, joined by two women, uh, Mali Stappers, the Executive Director of Impunity Watch here in the Netherlands, who's worked on accountability issues in Guatemala for a long time. Hi, Mali. Hi, Janet. Nice to be here. And also by Brishna Kashach, who's in Guatemala City and who's been working directly with indigenous women there and supporting them in a recent court process. And she's also working for Impunity Watch. Hi, Brishna. Hi, I'm happy to be here as well. So let's lay the ground out a little. I'm going to uh, ask our guests to give us quite a lot of background, but maybe just to explain the reason why we decided to do this podcast. In January this year, the high-risk court or the high-impact court, which was specially set up to deal with high-level cases like transitional justice ones and corruption ones because they get specialised expertise from the judges and special protection because of the risk of intimidation and the attacks on witnesses, judges, prosecutors. That court ruled that five former paramilitaries were guilty of rape domestic slavery and sexual abuse against indigenous women during the civil war. The indigenous women are from the Mayan Achi. And these women had spent years demanding justice. So, Brisna, a big question to start with. How did the case come about? Well, this case is related to crimes and facts that occurred during the armed conflict in the municipality of Ravinal, which is in the northern eastern part of uh, Guatemala. Between 1981 and 1982, women were raped. Uh, these crimes were committed alongside other crimes that involved uh, genocide, massacres, forced disappearance. But in 2011, a group of women decided to present a criminal claim for these crimes that had been committed against them. And by 2014, uh, the group had grown to be 36 Achi women who had been raped, rape that was committed by paramilitary self-defense patrollers at the community level who were trained and organized by the military. That's uh, a long time ago, obviously, that you're talking about, but also a long time for these women to have been trying to bring this complaint 
to court. Now, I understood one place that I'd read that they kind of got part the way through, but they had one judge saying that they didn't actually believe these women. Yeah, uh, the legal processes in Guatemala take a long time. There's a lot of late response in terms of the investigation process. So from 2011 till now, it has been more than 10 years in which the women were waiting for justice. Within, you could say, the middle point of the criminal process, where the judge determines whether there is enough evidence to send the accused to trial, this judge, Claudia Dominguez, decided that there was not enough evidence. She completely ignored the testimony of the women who identified the patrollers that had been detained at this moment. But at this stage where she had to decide whether to send them to trial or not, she sent them free. And this is a judge that is linked to military sectors, but we've seen her act in different cases where her strategy is to sort of dismantle. So what we see in the end, because of the the, the legal actions that the lawyers and the women presented, three of these men were able to be linked a- again to the process and they were sent to trial. And three of them are of those total five that were in the trial in January. But we are still pending the resolution of the other three. Okay, it it does sound complicated. I'm not too sure whether we want to go into the deep weeds of, of exactly how it's worked. And you talk about patrollers, meaning the these paramilitary people, but maybe I can bring in Marlise here to ask a general question then about how the Guatemalan justice system works. I mean, do you have to work on the individual judges to to get them to change their minds then or or is it that you have to move from to from court to court is it just a matter of keeping on going how would you describe the the successful strategy that's been deployed here well, it's a good question, Janet. And I think, you know, when you look at the Guatemalan justice system, you can say overall. I mean, Guatemala before was seen as the country of impunity. And this was basically also true because the justice system would not function and was really there to uphold impunity for the status quo and for the powerful elites who didn't want anything to change. But in the course of the year, since the peace accords, things have slowly started to change and there has become more of a group of, of judges who have been stronger in independence of justice and who've tried to do a good job. So basically now if you go to trial, you need to be lucky to see, you know, which judge will see your trial, which of course you cannot control beforehand. So this judge that Krishna just mentioned, she obviously was a judge that you would not want your case to go at. But afterwards, we were lucky for the case to move to a different judge, which is Judge Calves, who has seen many cases of corruption, of really high impact corruption against former president, for example, and who is much more open to really look at this case from an independence perspective. And this is where we saw that the case was able to move forward. And can I ask you, Prishna, what kind of role did survivors actually play in this case? Were they able to give testimony? Are the women still alive who who experienced this violence? Um, you know, how did how did they take part in this case? Like in many of transitional justice in Guatemala, these cases move forward because of the decision and determination of the victims. It was uh, the women who decided that they wanted to seek justice for what had happened to them. Like in many cases, these women started participating 
with local organization, Bufete Jurídico de Rabinal, working on other cases related to other crimes. And as they started working, the, the organization started to identify victims of sexual violence, and they considered that it would be important to present a claim focusing on the sexual violence. Like I mentioned, it was a total of 36 women. Uh, right now, two of these women have passed away. They were not able to see the trial. I think it's also important to say that the trial against the five civil patrollers that we heard in, in January was focused on the crimes and sexual violence that occurred against five of these women. But the, all the, the 34 women felt represented in them. So these five women were able to give their testimonies in trial, in court, but other testimonies from other women were also presented as a sort of background and to explain to the judges uh, the magnitude of the sexual violence that occurred against them. And when, for example, the previous judge had decided that she didn't believe the testimony of the women, this was a hard moment for the women, but they still decided and they pressured the organizations that they wanted to continue seeking justice and they wanted to find all the possibilities that they could so that this trial and this case could move forward. The, the testimonies of the women was the main evidence provided and everything else around it was uh, all the other expert reports, all the other testimonies were there to support what the women were saying in their testimonies. Could I maybe add one one thing to this? Because I think what's really important when we look at Guatemala and what perhaps is also a lesson for other countries is that the Guatemalan law allows for victims to be co-plaintiffs in the case. So in this case of the, the Mayachi women, the women could themselves turn themselves into uh, co-plaintiffs. So they had their own representative. And this means that women have the opportunity not only to be the victims or to be there in a role of victimhood, but really to become protagonists and to control the judicial process themselves. So they become part, you know, of the hearings. They can also make sure, you know, that questions are being posed on their behalf. And at the end of the trial, they have the opportunity to address the court, to address the judges, to, to give some messages of critical importance to them. So, for example, at the end of the trial, the women would say, you know, how important this case was to them, that they asked the court to believe them. And this goes back to what uh, Judge Claudette said when she didn't believe them, which was so harmful for the women. So for them, you know, the fact of being acknowledged in their truth was of fundamental importance. And it was really moving and heartbreaking to hear them, but also very powerful, since they themselves could address the court. And I think for the women, this turns them from victims into more protagonists and survivors. And therefore, they can also set an example for other women, indigenous women, in a country that is so racist and so machista, you know, that it is possible for women to take the floor and to represent themselves and to demand justice and for this to be seen as legitimate. I want to ask both of you in a bit a bit more about the specifics of the case, but maybe for some people who aren't so familiar with Guatemala, Malis, you could also just give us a little bit more context as to how damaging this 30-year-long, more than 30 years, I think? 36 years. Civil war was. Yeah. 
Well, it was very damaging. It was, I think, um, if you look at the, the, the conflicts that took place in Latin America in that time, and of course here in the Netherlands and in, internationally, we hear a lot about Argentina, about Chile, maybe Nicaragua and El Salvador. And perhaps Guatemala was the least known of all these conflicts, where in comparison, it was the worst conflict that took place. And I think what makes Guatemala stand out, it's the genocide component, right? It's the huge indigenous population there that was directly targeted by a counterinsurgency strategy. So if you look at what happened during these 36 years of war, um, you know, there were 200,000 people killed, 45,000 people forcefully disappeared, over a million people who were forced to flee the country. Uh, 89% of the population uh, of victims was Maya, 93% of the violations were done by the military. And there was what, what was called in Guatemala a policy, a scorched earth policy, which meant, you know, that there was a policy of massacres that totally destroyed full communities, that burned them down literally to the ground. And uh, also a strategy that was called taking the water out of the fish. So as the, the military saw, you know, there was a, a guerrilla movement, which wasn't that big. The military felt they couldn't fight them. And due to the deeply ingrained racism, they thought the best way to fight this guerrilla was to simply do away with the indigenous communities that were seen as their supporters. Even though the, the majority of these victims were civilians, they don't have anything to do with the guerrilla. So that made, uh, left a deep impact. And one other component that I think is vital to understand um, what happens in Guatemala is that the military, in order to control the population, they wanted to basically, you know, to take out of the population the dream of having a better life ever. So the guerrilla emerged because there was such a lot of inequality and injustice in the country, and especially the Maya population uh, lived under really difficult circumstances of exclusion. So the guerrilla wanted to change that situation. And of course, that was a threat to the status quo. So in order to do that, there was the policy, the genocidal policy, and there was the massacres. But they also installed in the country this policy of control over the population by making the young communities co-responsible for the violence. And this is where the paramilitary uh, groups emerged. And they were you know, the lead, of course, of the military. And they were really meant to make violence a deeply ingrained problem of the communities itself. So if you would have the military coming into a community, they would come and move out. But by involving the, the PAC, so these this paramilitary groups, it became a component of the social tissue of the communities itself. And that has really deeply, deeply destroyed the community tissue. And that is, of course, something that remains in place right now. So perversely, you know, if you look at this case that we're discussing today, the five people tried were all uh, Maya Achi men who committed crimes against their own community. And it was due to the military training, due to the orders they got, that they were forced to commit these crimes. But also their mentality changed. In the Truth Commission, we spoke about, you know, the militarized, creating militarized mentalities which were based on dehumanizing uh, the people you would do atrocities to in order to have a legitimate goal to do that and live, you know, with, with the deeds that you've done. You mentioned the Truth Commission, Marlies. You mentioned uh, impunity as being kind of the watchword for, for Guatemala. I mean, how much of what you're speaking about do we know as a result of Truth Commission, as a result of different cases that uh, have gone on? I mean, could, 
what measures have already been been taking place in Guatemala? Because there seem to have been quite quite a lot to me yeah. from the outside. One of the reasons why I felt uh, when I was very young so drawn to Guatemala is that it has everything, right? I've seen few countries, and I've worked in quite a lot of countries with Impunity Watch, where I've seen so much creativity, so much resilience, so much insistence from the population to move forward, even in the most adverse uh, circumstances. So if you look at the peace accords and you look at the role that civil society played, that the actual victim communities played, it's quite remarkable how strong they are, how political they are, and how they've managed to put certain key issues on the agenda. So the truth commissions, for example, were something that the civil society fought for. But then when the truth commission mandate was being negotiated, they were afraid that the mandate was too weak because obviously it were negotiations and the military was there. And so many of the accords risked, you know, to be watered down. So they insisted that not only the official truth commission would be there, but there was also a truth commission of the Catholic Church that would then also do their own truth that would become before the official truth commission. So that there would be a high uh, level, you know, that would be an example for the official truth commission to hold on to. But as often happens, you know, these transitional justice mechanisms are a nice tool and they can produce nice instruments. But then from the instrument towards really impacting change, that's a, a huge step to take, especially if impunity is so deeply ingrained in the state structures. So these entrenched interests, former military, kept being part very much of the state institutions, of the police and the military. So the truth commissions were one part. Then uh, there was a reparations program being um, installed, which has also done very little to actually redress the victims and to underscore the dignity or repair the dignity. And then the trials started also already in the 90s. Uh, there were first civil society organizations who against the, the current started to prepare for these cases in very long processes with enormous courage. And very slowly through their insistence, they managed step by step to move forward. But of course, it took a lot of uh, resources, a lot of courage. But um, that has been very important in getting us where we are now. I think one of the the agreements of the peace agreements was focused on reforming justice, the justice system. And for example, just the creation of these high-risk courts or specialized courts, the fact that now we have a court that is meant to be specialized on cases of the conflict, which are much more complex because they involve multiple perpetrators, but also multiple victims, so I think that is important. And also in terms of the general prosecutor's office, the fact that we have a district unit, uh, attorneys focusing on that has also been an important advancement. There's many cases previous to this cheat case that were important. And definitely the genocide case against Rios Montt was very important, that even though it was focused on one a Mayan community, which is the Ishil uh, Mayan community, many people felt represented because obviously the, the former president, Rios Montt, the dictator, was responsible for many of the crimes that were committing between 1881 and, and 83. That is like the highest concentration of gross human rights violations that occurred during, uh, during the country. So definitely these cases have opened the way 
for this particular case to move forward. And of course, for example, the Sepursarco case, which was the first case focused on judging sexual violence and sexual slavery against the, the Kekchi population. But there's also been other cases, like the Molina Tyson case, which also showed the use of sexual violence as a mechanism of torture during the detention, illegal detention of, of someone. So each of these cases has shown how sexual violence was used as a weapon of war in different in different ways. I think it's important to say that as part of the the military strategy during the war, obviously it used um, genocide, it used massacres, the scorched earth, um, but also sexual violence was a strategy used in, in the war to gain control over the populations, to inflict also uh, fear on the women. I think it's important to say that in most of these cases, the women are raped after their husbands have been disappeared or have been uh, murdered, or if they are alone, if their uh, parents or family members are no longer with them. So it, they create condition of vulnerability of these women to rape them and also install more fear on the women. And you can, this this case showed us, for example, how women were raped in different locations in the mountains, in the rivers where they would wash clothes in their homes. Some were also taken to the military detachment around their community. So they, they were also enslaved by being taken and being uh, raped there. Um, and even girls, one of the one of the five women that was included in the case was actually 12 when she was raped and she was raped after her parents were murdered and in front of her siblings. So that is very traumatic, not just for her, but also her family members and the rest of the community. The other older women, for example, were all pregnant when they were raped. So in, in some of them, they had miscarriages due to this um, rape. Hearing a lot of uh, what you're saying, talking about the individual testimony uh, that has come come out here, which I'm sure has taken huge courage for these these women to, to come forward with. But I'm also wondering, you also mentioned, Brisner, that there was other experts' testimony that kind of supported the women. Can you describe a little bit the, the interaction of those different elements that uh, that was seen in the in this case what what has what has been needed from experts in order to support these individual testimonies the the expert reports and the testimonies of other people what happened is very important on one side because when we think of sexual violence it tends to be a crime where there are no other witnesses there is this idea that it's something that happens between the perpetrator and the victim. And there is all this sort of uh, stereotype surrounding rape, uh, the shame that goes with that sort of crime, but also the, the questioning of the women. And this is in general, when we talk of sexual violence in general, there's always this idea that some, some, the women did something to provoke it or to deserve it, or also these ideas of the men having like these sexual desires. So the testimonies of other people sort of help change that, that perspective. But also, I think the export reports show us 
how the sexual violence that occurred was part of this military strategy and how it was a weapon of war that was used not only because they wanted to attack specifically these women, but because they wanted to attack the community and the families. So about 20 expert reports were presented in the case. And just to mention some were focused on explaining how sexual violence is also a part of a, a sexist and racial aspect in these crimes. This is something that happened against indigenous women. So it's not only about trying to control people or communities that were demanding their rights, but it's also a community that has a different culture, that has a different political point of view. And this is where the genocide perspective comes in. It's a, it's a very racist action uh, and militarized action against this population. So we had expert reports explaining the racism behind this crimes, uh, a military expert explaining how this is part of this. This was part of the security uh, doctrine that was implemented during during the war. There was also a specialized uh, expert report on how the paramilitary self-defense patrols were built, uh, organized and armed by the military. There was an argument used, for example, that there was no link to the army, that there's no responsibility from the state, for example. But this report proved very much how it was different. But also other testimonies, uh, expert reports that explained the damage that is done to the women in terms of health, psychosocial aspects, but also the cultural damage that is done to the population. And uh, I think an important one was also the um, international standards in recognizing the validity of the testimonies of women when it comes to sexual rape. These are events that happened so many years ago. There was no sort of medical DNA testing needed to prove that this rape happened uh, because there are international standards that can show us how Within the testimony, if we analyze the narrative of the testimonies, the, the things that are being said, it can show us that it is a true testimony and it's not made up like some of the defense tried to argue in this case. The other thing that struck me from, from reading about this is that uh, in this case, they were found guilty of sexual violence as a crime against humanity. How do you show that sexual violence is widespread and systematic. How did they manage to, to achieve that? Well, I think the with, with the expert reports, there's also, I think, with transitional justice cases in Guatemala, is trying to understand when and where these crimes happened. They happened in a context of conflict, in a community in, with high human rights violations. And there's... For example, elements like the Truth Commission report that was also an important document to explain the context in which these crimes were were committed. I think the main element in all of this was the recognition of the women of the perpetrators. They recognized them as being uh, civil patrollers. And then these other expert reports and and the Truth Commission report, for example, what they show us is that these testimonies do have a relationship 
with the historical moment, with the geographical moment. So there's a, a coincidence, you can say, uh, a narrative that is continued that shows that this is, um, is true. But, but the main thing of why these five men were convicted is because of the identification of the women of, of these men. I do think it's important to say that the other women, the 30, the total 36 women were not included in this case because they needed to identify a specific patroller to be tried. So that this is what one of the reasons only why these five were in the trial because there was evidence that placed them and identified them as being, uh, first of all, being part of the self-patrol paramilitary groups uh, for being part of the community and by being identified by the women and other witnesses that this is something they would do. They would come to the communities, they would question women, they would uh, rape them, they would take them to the military detachment. And I do want to add just one important thing why I think this case is very significant in explaining what happened in Guatemala is that Ravinal, the, the municipality where this happened, was the place where there were more paramilitary groups formed. Uh, the Truth Commission um, established that 94% of the crimes committed between 81 and 83, which were the highest years, were committed by these self-patrollers. And Ravinal was 18% of these patrollers were located in Ravinal. So you can see that there was like a high concentration of these patrollers in, in the region. And I think this case was very clear and very significant in, in showing and explaining that this was part of a, of a, a state military strategy in committing the, these crimes. And it also coincided, if you look at uh, the conclusions of the Truth Commission, that uh, concluded that Ravinal was one of the areas where genocide occurred. So you have the broader context, you know, in which already a modus operandi uh, was being established that included uh, rape, of course. And then this case, you know, going into more detail in some of the uh, of the particularities thereof. So I think that also was an important part of the evidence. And let's uh, turn to what's happening now. I understand that the defence has appealed and they can take that to the Supreme Court and then ultimately they could knock on the door of the Constitutional Court. And it's only when it's actually gone through all those stages that uh, any reparations might kick in. Will reparations make a difference to the, the society, to that community? Will they, um, I mean, how important will reparations be in the end? I think this is one of the, um, the elements why the legal process in Guatemala is so, it takes so long. I mean, it's been 11 years since the, the, the petition was sort of presented. And then we have to wait for these appeals to be resolved before it, the sentence is declared to be, here we call it firm. And un until that moment, the reparation measures can be implemented. In, in the case, for example, of Sepul Sarko, uh, it took two years, this process, to sort of clear those appeals. So we still have to, to wait for that. The reparation measures that were presented, 24 were solicited, but uh, 12 were granted by the judges. And I think that these measures, one of the important aspects is that they have a focus 
not only of sort of repairing the damage to the women, but to the community at the community level. And one of the main demands of the women is that they don't want this happen uh, again. They don't want future uh, girls or other women to have to go through with this. And they see that empowering the women, for example, creating better life conditions for them can give the women also the tools so that they are able to stop or maybe uh, contain a bit of the of sexual violence occurring again. So some of the measures that are, are in- included are from a perspective of transformative reparations. Some are focused on, on specifically the women, but then there's others in terms of health, for example, in creating um, health centers that can uh, see and receive victims of sexual violence of the conflict, but also of other forms of sexual violence, and also creating opportunities of education for their children and their grandchildren with this idea that a process in terms of the, the family life and community life was interrupted, and it's important to continue in creating better life conditions for the women, and obviously a different kind of measures uh, focused on um, the historical memory and recognizing what had happened in sort of sharing the sentence, it being translated in different languages, but also creating material videos or communicational materials that can be shared with the population in terms of what, what happened to them, creating murals, for example, and also promoting human rights uh, training for military uh, institutions. Uh, Can I add a couple of components that I think are, um, in addition, are really important. For example, if you look at the Sepo Sarko case, what I think was really powerful there, that the reparations did not only affect the women themselves, but also the broader community. So if you understand, you know, that women, you know, in the in the, 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 the constructed narrative by the state, you know, were seen as women who deserved it, who might maybe be prostitutes, so in this sense, the reparations helped the truth-telling. So really, you know, it was a way to tell the truth about what really happened and to showing the suffering and socializing that with the society. And it was really important, like this case, you know, to tell the society uh, the truth about what happened. And that you can really see a change in how there is reporting being done about these crimes. So if before these women were being stigmatized, now you see there is a broader societal uh, acceptance that these cases, that these crimes are unacceptable, that rape is not something women deserve and that this should not happen again. In a macho society, in a racist society, that is, of course, something very important that was fought by by the women. But also the fact that broader society was included in the reparations, for example, in, in, in Sepo Sarko, meant that communities who perhaps before, you know, were discrediting these women, after that sentence and bringing um, community-level reparations to, to, to the community, meant that people were much more positive to these women because they brought something important to the community. Development, uh, a health um, a mobile clinic, for example. So it also helped these women in strengthening the social tissue, their acceptance and becoming from these victims who needed to silence their sufferings, who needed to be ashamed of their suffering, towards victims you know, who were empowered and who were being seen in the community as people who bring something positive. In the reading around uh, I, I did uh, on this, I also saw there's 
let's say, a potential threat to all of these uh, processes, that, that there's a discussion going on in Guatemala about uh, amnesties and that it's potential that there could be an, an amnesty bill that could come in and could make that everybody, including former military, paramilitary, anybody who was in, in accused of or even convicted of, of the crimes during the conflict could, could be amnestied and said, you know, let's just wipe the slate clean. What, what is going on with that? And how much of a threat does that present to all of these processes, Marlies? Well, I think it's a big threat. I mean, um, if you look at, uh, the, the, we're discussing now cases, you know, but you cannot see these cases in isolation from the broader political context. And Guatemala is also this example where you see that progress is being made, remarkable progress being made in terms of uh, fighting against impunity, you know, unseen in the world, like bringing a, a dictator to trial in its own country for genocide. I haven't seen that happen in other countries. But at the same time, this progress has meant that there has been an increasing pushback against all these initiatives. And so you've seen in the, the past years and, and, and now it's really incredible what is taking place, how the, the corrupt pact it's called in Guatemala. So the military, uh, corrupt politicians, the economic elites are all colliding together in order to make sure that progress is being made on them and that the conditions are being put for, uh, for progress not to happen again. So if you look at the justice system, we see that in the court system, in the attorney general office, um, uh, in the Congress, you know, in all places, independent justice operators are being removed and being put in place by people who are doing a service to keeping in place the impunity. And so this we see in the trials. So there's a constant risk that also trials and, and verdicts are being overhauled on the one hand. And then there's this amnesty law. You could say it's a constant threat. So there was a, an amnesty initiative in Congress already being discussed for, for a long time. In February, when we still had a constitutional court who was somewhat independent, there was a ruling also based on international jurisprudence that amnesty is illegal and cannot move forward. This was in February. And then I think it was June. Uh, a new amnesty bill was put forward, notably by the daughter of Rios Montt, who was the dictator put on trial for genocide. So she has now put forward a new initiative on amnesty. And um, the constitutional court has now been changed. So also here we see that it's been co-opted by allies of the corrupt pact. And so there's a real risk that this time the constitutional court might rule differently, although they're not allowed to because there's the ruling of the previous constitutional court saying that no amnesty whatsoever is legitimate and can move forward. And I think this is a, perhaps a very important point that I want to make and also an example that we can learn from Guatemala and I think should be an example internationally, you know, that we can see again, you know, that there progress, very important progress can be made in terms of justice. We can have um, a conviction, we can have huge results, but none of these results can be sure, you know, in, in a context where there is still deeply rooted impunity. Tomorrow, these sentences can be overhauled. So then what are we left with and how do we strengthen a society? So even if this happens, you know, to have the, the, the strength to still move forward and to make sure that the fight for justice, for dignity against impunity remains on the agenda. In this case, uniquely in the context of Guatemala, we had three indigenous female judges 
going to tr- uh, um, standing up for these women and sitting there in a, in a, in a Spanish Western tribunal, you know, in their indigenous clothing, speaking out for these women, proving, you know, how eloquent they are, how good they are in their job. And this is a, a push for transformation, to showing the system that is exclu- uh, exclusionary, that is racist, to say, here we are and we will continue to be here and we will continue to fight for these issues. But it would be very nice if the international community would see this importance and would stand by these processes. And unfortunately, since um, there is other things going on in the world already for a long time, Guatemala is forgotten. And these very important results that were achieved that are an example and an inspiration to victims all across the world, I would say, in terms of how do you do strategic litigation well, are risking, you know, to be forgotten and we're not learning the lessons and we're allowing this progress to be dismantled. And that's really very sad. I think it's um, a good point at which uh, to to stop the, the main part of the, the podcast. But Bristner, we always ask uh, a few final questions. And the first one is, is there anything that uh, we should have covered that that we haven't covered. So you're allowed to have a last word if you would like. Thank you. I want to emphasize the role and uh, the decision, sort of the determination that the victims have to move forward um, with the cases. Uh, and one of the things that I admire very much in this case is that, for example, the 36 women they supported the five women that were included in, in this trial. And they were very much attentive. Uh, I remember them wanting to be in the courtroom when the women were going to give their testimonies. It was very important for them to be there and show the women that they were there to, to support them. And when we've asked the women if, if they are satisfied with the results of the trial, they, they're all very satisfied. First, their voice and their story was heard and it was believed. And these men are now in jail because of what they did to them. But they are, they are also very much aware that there's still justice spending for other women. They know that there are still other per, uh, perpetrators that should be uh, facing justice and trials. And they, I want to sort of share that that strength and determination of the women, that they will also be there to support all these other women in their processes. Um, and they recognize the importance of the support, not only of the women, of the communities, but of the different organizations that have made this possible at the national and uh, international levels. Well, I think, you know, when we look at the Sepuisarco case and now the Women at Chi case, as we've said, um, it has been so important because this has been the fight of women who've tried to gain recognition of the crime of sexual violence as a weapon of war and as part of a deliberate uh, state strategy in order to control and subjugate the population. Uh, but that fight is not over yet, right? I mean, if you look at who has been tried, it has still been very low-level perpetrators. So it has been the, the, the paramilitary and it has been a low-level military official. But the higher level, the, 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 the authors, the intellectual authors are still being left out. So I think for the women's struggle, um, it is so incredibly important to make sure that we can link that higher level also in these cases. So that needs to be um, a next step. Because until that happens, and we still see it, you know, that there is denial that the state says, you know, that these are crimes that were committed by some men, you know, who couldn't control themselves. 
So that is important. And I think the fact that in the current context, this case could move forward was because it were achieved men and not higher level military. And so that makes it also, you know, a great win, but also very cynical because, you know, what we want to show that this is a state's policy, that there's an, an intellectual author, you know, that needs to be re uh, made responsible for this. And until that happens, there's still a long fight um, to, to be done. And the last question that we always ask our um, podcast guests is, is there anything you'd like to share with our listeners that you've been either reading recently or watching recently or listening to recently? It can be connected to this subject or it can be something that's completely different indeed. Uh, Brisna, let's start with you. Well, actually, I've been uh, rereading a book called the, the Handmaid's Tale, which is something that I read as a, as a teenager, but recently sort of found again. And I think when, when I read it, it's, I mean, if you know, if you know about the story, it is about a society that uh, contains or places women in a very traditional conservative role in their motherhood and these handmaids are basically women to give birth to different, for the different elite, economic elite. So it's a very sort of conservative, religious society. And sometimes I read it, and it seems like a very extreme thing, but at the same time, in Guatemala, we are living in a very regressive um, moment in terms of human rights violations and also the rights of, of women and, and the sort of imposition of wanting to control the women. So it is interesting to see that that parallel and, and there's a lot to think about in terms of dismantling these uh, fundamentalist religious conservative uh, narratives in terms of, of, of women. Yeah, chilling tale. And uh, I uh, I don't fancy rereading it myself, but thank you for reminding us of it. Marlies, what about you? Uh, well, you catch me a little bit off guard and I should have known better because I listened to your podcast. <laughs> But maybe to say that uh, lately I've been reading up a little bit on the old socio sociologists and um, I found some great importance to better fleshing out impunity in, in, in the context of modernization. So I'm quite struck by a philosopher called Baumann, who has written a lot, for example, about the Holocaust, but very much putting this into perspective, right, of modernization and explaining how bureaucracies, how modern modernization, how rationalization makes systems not think anymore, but really putting as a goal, you know, the output of an efficient bureaucracy rather than really questioning the end goal of it. And increasingly, also now that I look at what is happening in the world, I think there's such important lessons to, to be drawn there. Yeah, very serious and important stuff. And uh, we'll uh, find uh, some links to those and uh, put those up on the site. And I think we'll also have to add quite a few links to some of the different cases that we've been through in this really deep dive into Guatemala, but also really interesting sort of considering how these cases specifically on sexual violence have gone forward and and some of the the lessons that uh, that you have learned and you've explained to our audiences about it so thank you Marlies and Brisna thank you both so much for giving up your time for this podcast thank you oh thank you Janet 
This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.